Thank you so much, my dear wife, for putting those things together and worship team for all of your service and help. Uh, If you would turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 1, this Advent I'll be preaching a, a sermon series called Joy to the World. You ever heard that phrase before? Joy to the world. And uh, uh, what I did is a study of, of the various times that we have the idea of joy referred to in the Christmas stories of Scripture, the Christmas accounts. When do we have joy? Some people uh, really struggle with joy. And some would say, I don't, I don't have it. I don't feel it. I wish I did. And so my prayer during this time is that in Christ you would receive joy this month. Apart from circumstances, because boy, those change, don't they? Those can be very disappointing, challenging, stressful. But that you would pause manger side and worship the little one who brought joy to the world. So this morning, I'll be preaching on Mary's joy. Mary's joy. By the way, did you know I wrote this separate from my wife's planning of worship? We didn't compare notes. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 says this. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. You know, one reason that we may always rejoice is that the Lord is with us. He said to her, blessed are you among women. There are 238 times that the word rejoice is in the Bible. Just the word rejoice. Not just the word joy, but the word rejoice. 238 times. I didn't have time to read every one as I prepared for this message. But I did notice some some very interesting things. The word rejoice shows up in the Psalms some 60 times. That's the powerhouse book of rejoicing. 60 times in the Psalms. In Proverbs, 15 times. If you had to guess which Old Testament book was third, what might you guess? 13 times it says rejoice, uses the word. It's in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the book of the law. You know why? Because God wants his people to rejoice. The God of the Old Testament, the God who gave the law, as John Wesley called it, the unveiling of the face of God. And so many times the phrase, nine times in the book of Deuteronomy, we're explicitly commanded to rejoice. God says something like this, and it shows up again and again, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. It's a frequent phrase. God wants us to have joy. He takes pleasure in our happiness. That's the God we serve. Amen. God wants you. He commands you and I to rejoice. In fact, 
the command to rejoice occurs only a few more times throughout the entirety of the New Testament than it does in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the same God. It becomes a less common command in one sense in the New Testament, which of course is full of joy. It's commanded there a few more times, and the angel comes to Mary and says, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. There may be an initial skepticism in our hearts when we are met with God's command to rejoice. God says rejoice, and we say, how? (laughs) In fact, uh, Mary says something like this to the angel. Uh, After all, we might say to ourselves, what do we have to rejoice about? This is the same Mary who would later be warned A sword shall pierce your own soul also, this having to do with what happened to her son. There is a hesitation, and even Mary was troubled for a moment when the command to rejoice is given. There there is a hesitation that can come over us before the completion of the joy, when the command is the only thing that's there. Rejoice. Well, I don't see the, the reason, I don't see the circumstances that we have by which I would rejoice. The utterance of a command of God for us to obey seldom comes with the blessing packed in the same box. Or if it does, the box is really big. It can span our whole lives. <laughs> it is connected, but it may, not be, it may be attached at such a distance that we will not see the blessing perfected in this life. God says rejoice because a time is coming. God says rejoice because I am going to do this. Yet once God's word is formed, his blessing will come. Amen? Rejoice. Mary was blessed in that she was to be the bearer of the Christ. A marvelous conception. A marvelous conception. Now, one of the chief things that an atheist will mock is the virgin virgin conception. Not a virgin birth, a virgin conception. How can that be? That's never happened before. Exactly. You're getting the point. (laughs) It's scientifically impossible. Closer. (laughs) Verse 29, but when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. We're in Messiah territory now. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no... Good job, y'all. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? Has the same question that the atheists do, that we all do, really. How can this be? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, is the third person of the Trinity, who is a who, a he, not an it, not a force, but God in his presence among us. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. 
You know, sometimes women and, and, and parents try to keep it a secret when they're expecting another child. Have you ever had an angel tell on you before? She's been coming along now for six months. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In Matthew 1, we learn more about what would take place in this incredible occurrence. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. See, it happened. (laughs) Verse 19, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly, to divorce her. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Think about that for a moment. The name of Jesus means God is my salvation. God saves. Verse 22, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This is, by the way, the prophet Isaiah who hundreds of years before had prophesied, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. I'm guessing that the Hebrew scholars of Isaiah's day just rested in this notion that the word in Hebrew could be variously translated, either virgin or young woman. Not so in the Greek, in my understanding, it's the virgin. God knew what he meant. I've been asked before why Mary must be a virgin. This comes up with some regularity. Why why did she need to be a virgin? There is in Scripture a conception of the sinfulness of man. From the earliest parts of Genesis to the outermost reaches of Revelation... John Wesley writes, the scripture avers, and he uses words like avers that I have to then look up. The scripture avers that by one man's disobedience, all men were constituted sinners. That in Adam, all died. Spiritually died, he writes, lost the life in the image of God. That fallen sinful Adam then begat a son in his own likeness. Nor was it possible that he should beget him in any other, for who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Wesley continues that, Consequently, we, as well as other men, were by nature dead in trespasses and sins, without hope, without God in the world, and therefore children of wrath, that every man may say, I was shapen in wickedness, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That there is no difference, he writes, and that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, of that glorious image of God wherein man was originally created. And hence, when the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men, he saw that they were all gone out of the way, that they were altogether become abominable, that there was none righteous, no, not one, none that truly sought after God. He writes, just agreeable to this, to what is declared by the Holy Ghost in the words above recited, God saw when he looked down from heaven before that the wickedness of man was great in the earth 
so great that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We have a problem. We have a problem. There's a sin virus passed down to us. We've inherited it from Adam. And this sinfulness in which we were shapen and are by nature children of wrath is given to us by our, here's the theological term, federal head, Adam. Romans 5.19 says that by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, as Wesley already quoted, and we find that we must have a cure. My mother taught me when I was very young. She'd, she'd teach me theology. She taught me that had Jesus been born of Joseph, he would have been infected with the same sin as I was and thus would have been unable to make a perfect sacrifice for sin. Scripture says, he who knew no sin, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There was, there was no iniquity found in his mouth. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet was without sin. Not just the committing of sins, which he didn't do that either, but he had no sin, singular. He had no inner corruption. So he was able to make a perfect sacrifice. And so God overshadowed Mary and Jesus Christ, who pre-existed Mary, by the way, was and pre-existed all things, the pre-existent Son of God was conceived in her as a human by the Holy Spirit, yet not leaving his divinity. Doing a little theology this morning. No apologies. And thus he was born holy. Someone said there is no other way of his being born. For had he been of a sinful father, how should he have possessed a sinless nature? He is born of a woman that he might be human, but not by man that he might not be sinful. <laughs> the completion of joy. So Mary has the, the command to rejoice, but there's a completion of these things, these promises that God will make. In the year, just before we planted a church in Northeast Salem, in November of 2008, I felt that I had a little bit of time on my hands, so I finished a book I wrote entitled The Heart of a Great Family. And I emailed my manuscript to my publisher. You ever heard of a Shmuel Publishing Pastor? It's a little publishing house in Kentucky. One of the chapters of the book was entitled A Letter, and it was written with my teenage then, my teenage siblings in mind. And in it, I talked about a man named Michael Phelps. Any of you remember him? Raise your hand if you remember him. All right, so this is interesting. Okay. Michael Phelps. It doesn't seem like that long ago, but clearly it was long enough ago. He was a great Olympic swimmer. Great. Great athlete, really, overall. And do you remember in 2008... So I, this is what I wrote in, in my book, which was also a letter to my, my siblings at the time. Probably the most glorious moment for me in the 2008 Beijing Summer Olympics was that race where Michael Phelps and the American relay team smashed the world record in, in the men's 4x100 freestyle relay. And what does it take for a man like this to raise the roofs on millions of American homes and make his home country proud by becoming the most decorated Olympian in any sport. It takes, you ought to get on YouTube if you haven't seen him and watch that guy swim. It takes fierce dedication, 
discipline, and a focus that is determined to eliminate any distraction or obstacle. And I finish the chapter with these words. I'm praying for you guys. Sometimes when I think about you, I can hardly hold back the tears because I'm proud of you, and I also want you to make it in our sin-darkened world. I'm confident you will by his amazing grace. And I wrote, and when you finally make it home and into the arms of Jesus, and when you realize that you're there and the battle is over, and when you know that by the grace of God you've overcome, I imagine that you will experience a moment like that of Michael Phelps when his team won their race against all odds. And then, and this is from an article written at that time, and then Phelps leaned back and roared, all clenched fists and tendons, all the joy and all the pain and all the relief distilled into one epic moment. There are coming epic moments when the reason that we've been given a command to rejoice will be fulfilled. It will be done. We're sitting here just with a flavor in our mouths of the joy that is coming, but it's coming. And it will overwhelm all the pain that led us to that point because God is good and he has promised to see us through. And so Mary has a carol. We sang it this morning, the Magnificat. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. There are moments in life that are so spectacular, the best phrase we can come up with is to hark back to good golden times in childhood and say, this is just like Christmas morning. And I hope that you had a few Christmas moments like that yourself. Mary had literally just received the promise of Christmas. If you've never read Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, read it this year. There is a spot after Ebenezer Scrooge has gone through a night of horror, terror, and sadness as his miserly heart has been exposed that he wakes up on Christmas morning and it was all a dream and his heart is changed. Here's a slice of that moment. Running to the window, he opened it and put out his head. No fog, no mist, clear, bright, jovial, stirring, cold, cold, piping for the blood to dance to, golden sunlight, heavenly sky, sweet, fresh air, merry bells, oh, glorious, glorious. This is Mary's blessed state. He has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. It's not the voice of someone who cares whether she is ever venerated or prayed to, but of someone who recognizes that she is just as deeply in need of the grace of the God who has chosen her to bear his son as all of us. Frequently, the question we have when challenged to live and walk in the Lord and to rejoice is, how will I do that? How will I? But the answer is here, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Chronicles of joy down through history, God's merciful covenant. Mary moves from talking about just her blessed state to 
everyone. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. So she, she switches to include all those who fear him from generation to generation. She traces God's faithfulness through the old covenant. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of, his, of their hearts. And she doesn't know it, but he'll do that again. A midnight ride out of Jerusalem into Egypt is coming. The Herods will die, but her son will bring life to those who received his gift of grace freely offered. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly, she says. He has heard the heart cries of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Hannah. He has heard hers too before she cried them. He's multiplied oil for the poor. He will multiply bread and fishes. He has dealt severely with Nabal and Gehazi, rich men or folks who tried to be rich, and will do likewise with Judas and Simon the sorcerer. But he has done all in remembrance of his mercy, for he remembers his covenant with Abraham, a covenant into which even Gentiles, you and me, well, if you're Jewish this morning, then forgive me, we get to be grafted into you. (laughs) You and me may even be grafted No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, say it with me, far as the curse is found. God's covenant mercy is offered to whosoever will. Christmas joy effuses from covenant mercy. If you have eyes to see it, the chronicles record it. Will you receive joy this morning? Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Hallelujah. Would you stand? Our God and our Father, give your people joy. And Lord, I sense that there are probably just those who, the moment they hear this, desire it and long for it. But in that same moment, the enemy comes and brings a distraction and says, but what about, forget all those whatabouts. They'll keep. Receive the joy of the Lord, regardless of the pain, the fear, the health challenges, the financial, the relationships, your children, your plans for the day and for the year. Receive his joy because he came to give it to you. Lord, thank you so very much. We love you. We rejoice in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.